Good morning again. Privilege to be here with you on this lovely January day in Louisville. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, uh, worship team. And now we come to the central act of Christian worship, the preaching of God's Word. And we've already heard a sermon today in two words. Pastor Doug read it. But God. If not for God, I wouldn't be here today. But think about that. But God, right? That's why we're here. We're here to worship Him, the Holy One of Israel, the one true living God. And we're here because of those two words. But God, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God did not leave you there. What a glorious, glorious truth. That has warmed my heart today and open as yours. So take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to deal with one verse today. And I know what you're thinking probably. Oh, good. We'll beat the Methodist to the chicken. But uh, alas, we're going to spend some time on this because we think it demands time. So we look at the cost of faith. And so that's going to be a theme you're going to see throughout this chapter, what I've called it, the Cooperstown, the All of Faith. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 to 4 to give us our near context. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. Let's, let's stand uh, in honor of the reading of God's word. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. The Old Testament saints received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's creation ex nihilo. Look at that last week. And here's our verse for today. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died... He still speaks. This is the word of the living God. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we need more than anything else to hear a word from you. We don't need cleverness. We don't need humor. We don't need really to hear from a preacher. We need to hear from the word preached and the word proclaimed. So God, I pray that you give me grace and strength to faithfully exposit your word today, Lord. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, convict us of sin and unrighteousness. You'd draw us to yourself, Lord. You'd work in us and do which, that which you alone can do to make us holy, even as you are holy. For that holiness, no one will see the Lord, your word tells us. You make us wise. You'd make us humble. You'd build your church in us and through us that the gates of hell might not overcome it. And God, if there be one here today who does not know you, and Lord, I'm, I'm sure there is, Lord, I pray that you'd work in them today so that but God becomes the aroma of life unto life for them. That you'd work your work of grace in them unilaterally to draw them, to convict them, and to grant them repentance in their sins, and grant them the faith that we are talking about here, faith to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins, their only hope of eternal life, which is our only hope as we've sung today. Give us grace now to live out this text in the week ahead for your glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So as most of you who are members of, church, of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church know, I, real, I love biography. It's probably my favorite genre. I love history. I love dead people. I know you hear that uh, line about every two weeks, so I'll spare you that again. I do teach church history, but I love biography because it's a story of people's lives. And I love Hebrews chapter 11, which is often called the Hall of Faith, or you know I'm a baseball fan, so I call it the Cooperstown of Faith, because it's many biographies of Old Testament saints. And of course, the Holy Spirit has inspired these many biographies, these kind of bite-sized biographies, to spur us on to love and good deeds, to live out everything that's come before this. Because as we've said time and time again, we started this series months and months ago, the theme is perseverance. And given what has transpired in our globally the last 11 months, we need perseverance. If you're in ministry here, you know, if you've worked in a local church at all in the past few months, you know you have need of, for endurance, for perseverance in the faith, to walk with God every single day. And so that's what these illustrations, these mini biographies are designed to do, spur you on to love and good deeds, to persevere in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to keep in mind verses 1 and 2 as we walk through this whole chapter. That's the context. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This seems almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? The assurance of things hoped for. And as I said last week, to quote the old King James, the conviction or the evidence. And I argue that the evidence is a good translation. The evidence of things not seen. Of course, he goes on to speak of the creation, the created order, how things are made out of nothing as evidence that we can trust in God and trust in His Word for every circumstance of our lives. And you come here this morning of, I don't know your circumstances, a lot of them may not be good, but if you're in Christ, then you have every reason to be joyful and to hope. Not because we have some kind of, uh, you know, Jiminy Cricket kind of theology here or hope in Him or some, what I like to call precious moments. No, 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 no. No, this is faith for the real world. For a world that's fallen. We're going to get into that here in just a few moments. So that's the purpose of this chapter. Faith is, that is seen as described by the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 4, and 5. He says this. He says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And that's what I want for you. This is what our elders want for you and for us. That we want you to have this sure and settled hope so the circumstances of life don't blow you asunder. That, that it can be said of Christ Fellowship Church that we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ over there. We have heard that you have love for all the saints, for one another. We have unity. Boy, is that a counter-cultural word today and a word that we talk a lot about in this country, for example, but it is elusive, isn't it? But we have love for all the saints, love for saints here at this church and at Third Avenue Baptist Church and Reformed Baptist of Louisville and Highview and uh, uh, everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. Right? We have, we, have, you know, we have love for those saints and they know it because we pray for them, we encourage them, we, uh, you know, all these things. And we have a hope laid up in heaven. We have an inheritance that's certain and settled. It's as certain and settled as God is certain and settled because the hero, remember, of Hebrews chapter 11 is not Abel and, and uh, uh, Abraham and Noah and Enoch. Well, the hero is God. The, book, the Bible is about God, isn't it? We're just we're players <laughs> in this story, but it's a story of God's redeeming love in Christ for sinners like us. I love what A.W. Pink, an old 
uh, an old Baptist said about the three figures here, here in the first part of Hebrews chapter 11. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Look at those. Uh, these are the next three Sundays, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. He said they combined for, to provide us with an outline of the life of faith. Pete's outline said that today we look at Abel and that is faith's worship. So you look at, at, uh, at Abel, and this shows us how faith worships. And that's what we're here for every single Lord's Day, right? For, we're not here for anything else. Yes, we're encouraged with one another's presence. We're here to, to be encouraged and to encourage others. We're here to worship God most fundamentally. So faith's worship. Next week, we'll look at Enoch and faith's walk. Walking with God and what that looks like and how that ends. Because we're not so much interested in how you started your life of faith as long as you're in Christ, but we're more concerned about how you finish. So you have faith's walk, Pink says, and then you have Noah, faith's witness. Remember Noah, told to build a boat basically in the middle of the desert. It's never rained and says it's going to rain a lot and we're going to have a big flood. And people, <laughs> like we would have done, said, yeah, right. Yeah, Noah is crazy. He's one of those fringe lunatics, right? The lunatic fringe that we see written about often. That's, that's Noah. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks and see why Noah wasn't crazy. He was a man of great faith and he's witness to the faithfulness of God and the truthfulness of God. And of course, it's hard to say whether uh, the writer of Hebrews had any kind of explicit outline in mind. We don't know that uh, because he didn't put it that way himself, but I think it is suggestive. I, I like the way Pink gets at that. But I think it may be he's just simply following the chronological order of the Old Testament because these are in order. And I love that, and you probably do too. And so it builds a progression of which uh, Pink speaks, but I think that's what's going on here possibly. Now let's talk about our heroes just for a moment, all right? These are the he some of our heroes of the faith, heroes of the Old Testament. And heroes are good and necessary, and I have had many heroes down through my life, from Pete Rose when I was a little boy, got over that one pretty quickly, to John Calvin and Thomas Watson and people some of you have heard of, some of you have never heard of, and Charles Spurgeon and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones and many others, and my father, who's a World War II veteran, and lots of other uh, people I knew have had heroes. We've got to remind ourselves, here's the problem with heroes. They're flawed. And when we have heroes, we understand that they're just men, right? They're, even the best men are men at best. They're just men or women. Ladies have heroes. We all have heroes. So they're just men, and they're sinful, and they're fallen. And if you follow only those people and you, they don't point you to the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ, then men will let you down invariably. So we're not here to say this morning that Abel was perfect in every way. He was sinless. No, no, no. The Bible never says that. There's only one sinless man. That's Jesus Christ, the crucified Lord, right? So we have to say that about our heroes of the faith. It's not, this is not giving us some, some picture of perfection that we are to emulate at every level. I mean, think about the heroes of the Old Testament. Think about King David, a man after God's own heart, who was also a murderer and an adulterer. Fallen men, right? we're all fallen. We are not here at Christ Fellowship Church. We're not perfect people. We're people who've been declared righteous because we're justified by faith, right? But you follow me around through the weekend, you'll see me sin. Hope the difference is I hate it. I don't like it. I hope that's the difference. Should be for the Christian if you're a Christian. So our heroes are flawed, and so we got to see them accurately. Abraham, Paul, all the Paul was killing, persecuting Christians, right? Abraham lied and was chicken-hearted. And so this morning we deal with, we begin this walk through the hall of faith with Abel. 
which is very, who comes very early in the Bible, Genesis 4. And you might want to turn there. We're going to read the story of Cain and Abel here in just a moment, 4, 1 to 16. But here we see where I've, where I've derived the title of the sermon, The Cost of Faith. Because Christianity, rightly understood, is costly. Not that we can pay our way into heaven. I don't mean that. That is a theology, and that is a, a wicked, devilish theology out there. We're not here for your money today. That's not what we're about, and none of us should be about. But the cost of faith we see in Abel's justifying sacrifice. Let's look at the story. Way back at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. Just creation, one and two, Genesis 1 and 2, fall, and then... Cain and Abel. Let's read this, verses 1 to 16. It's kind of short. Now Adam, now, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, our first parents, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, shepherd, and Cain a worker of the ground, farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. And of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but and here's where we here's here's where it gets sticky, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Well, we all need to hear this, don't we? Sin is crouching at your door, he says. Its desire is for you to literally rule over you, but you must rule over it. And that's a cry for every one of us. Like sin wants you. Satan wants you. Sin wants you. But you must, by God's grace, rule over it. Okay, we can continue. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? One of the most famous quotes in all of history, right? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what that is. Lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And that little phrase, don't throw that away. Don't miss that. East of Eden. We're now, we're not in Eden anymore. We're not in paradise. Paradise, to quote a great work of literature, one of my favorite books, Paradise is Lost. And we're now east of Eden. We're east of Eden today. It feels further, we feel like we're further east of Eden, don't we, than, we, than, this, than Cain and Abel must have. But it's not so. And we see here that we have the first murder. As the fall begins to take hold from Genesis chapter 3, the first murder, the first murderer, and then the first person in heaven. Can you imagine what that would be like? You show up in heaven, you're by yourself, you're the first of millions to come, 
I'd be a little lonely. Probably not. God is there. You wouldn't be lonely. I'm not saying that. So Cain murders his brother Abel. Why? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain. And that's why Abel's being commended here by the writer of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews reminds us the most important point of this act of murder. Abel did what? He made a true sacrifice. Why? Well, what's the difference? We're going to see in a moment, I hope. Why did God receive Abel's sacrifice and not Cain, though? There's one of two ways we can look at it. Really, I think there's only two possibilities here, really and truly. One is that the men were different and their faith was different. I think the faith is different. The men were different, okay? Thus, there was no real difference in their sacrifices. They were the same. John Calvin held this view. He said, the sacrifice of Abel was more acceptable than that of his brother only because it was sanctified with faith. Where did this pleasing come from, from other than he had a heart purified by faith? So I can see the logic of this view. God receives the man of faith and his offering rejecting the man who lacks faith. Because Paul, of course, much later, thousands of years later, Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So I can see the logic of that. I don't think that's it, though. Here's what I think, here's what I think is going on. I mean, he could might be right, and it may be both. You know, I often like to opt for both sometimes when it's not clear in Scripture. So it could be both. It could be a problem with this faith. But I think it's this. The sacrifices were different. They were different in type. I think it's a better view because it, the, the other view does not seem to be a sufficient explanation for what we find in Genesis 4. Because the Old Testament text seems to emphasize the difference between the, first two, the two offerings and not merely between the two men. I think this is consistent with the rest of the Bible. The offerings were different, and in that difference we see the faith of one man and the unbelief of the other. So really is there faith, isn't it? So really I guess it is both and. That's fine. I'll take that. So to see this, we might begin by asking whether God had previously, there's only been three chapters in the Bible, right? Has he previously given some command or regulation concerning the type of sacrifice his people were to offer him? What had God, what had God told Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel's parents? We'll go back to Genesis chapter 3, just one chapter before this. And this is a monumental chapter in Scripture. We have the fall, right? And remember a good outline of the Bible is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Fall, Genesis 3, and then new creation from Genesis 3.15 till the first chapter of Revelation, then new creation, which is where we're going after that. That's really the whole Bible, isn't it? That's it. Simple. We can just go home, right? We can go eat the chicken, right? Well, not so fast. That's a good outline of the entire Bible, if you think of it that way. So, Genesis chapter 3, the fall, the tragic story of how we got where we are today, why there's so much division and crime and everything else, so much nonsense in the world today, it's Genesis 3. What we see out here, what I see in this world, in its fallenness, squares with Scripture. I think this is one of the evidences for the truthfulness of the Christian faith. The Bible just tells us right here, the world is going to be, as Luther put it, though this world, the devil's filled, shall threaten to undo us, it's going to threaten to undo us. The world is filled with devils. The world is fallen, right? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. It's, I'm actually surprised it's not worse. If not for God's common grace, I believe it would be worse. 
Genesis chapter 3, and verses 1 to 7, the serpent deceives, we know the story, the serpent deceived the woman, and Adam, and she took the fruit, God said, you should not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, she did, she was convinced more by the word of, the, of Satan than the word of God, and so she doubts God, she takes the fruit, she eats it, she gives some to Adam, and of course, Adam eats, and God cursed him plunged the world into a situation of separation from God, of, of, of depravity and sinfulness. Verses 8 to 13 of chapter 3, God confronts our first parents in their sin. They offer a pathetic excuse, shifting the blame. He says, Adam, what have you done? Adam said, the woman. <laughs> Some people claim there's a woman to blame. Well, there you go. The guy that wrote that song, you probably got it from right there, right? <laughs> Adam claimed there's a woman to blame. And you guys are laughing, but you know what? You probably would too, right? <laughs> Blame the little woman. It's real manly, isn't it? That's what he did. And Adam's, and Eve said, well, it's not me. The snake did it. The snake comes in here, you know, and he convinces me. And his word's pretty compelling. He said, I can be like you if I'll just eat the fruit. Well, you know, who wouldn't want to be like God? Well, they're convinced, and they shift the blame. They don't, they don't, there's no repentance. There's no sense of guilt there. And so verses 14 to 19, God curses the serpent, God curses the woman, curses Adam, curses the ground. This is why we have so much trouble with our yard in the spring, you know. I'm going to have to do all this work here in about six weeks or something because of the curse. I look forward to perfect lawns in glory, right? It's going to, be, it's going to look like the masters out there, I think. You know, I think that's what my lawn's going to look like if I have my way about it. No weeds, no crabgrass, no bare spots, none of that. But the ground is cursed, isn't it? And in verse 21, God deals with the problem. Verse 21, chapter 3 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They realized they were naked, and so God kills an animal and clothes them. Why is that important? Is that just not an extraneous detail? That's not an extraneous detail at all. <laughs> that is the first instance of substitution we have, where shedding of blood is a substitute to cover the sins of another. That sets the tone for the entire Bible. That's it right there, right? And he's already said back in verse, uh, ch chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you, God said, and the woman, speaking to the devil, and between your offspring and her offspring, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, going to be at war with one another throughout history, and we know it's true, don't we? Experientially. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What happened? And it's really, you shall crush his, he shall bruise your heel and you will crush his head. See, the seed of the woman, Christ, this is the, what we call the proto-gospel, the foreshadowing of the gospel, right? Christ will come and crush the head of the serpent. He's going to give you a lot of trouble and he's going to bruise your heel. He's going to bruise your heel at Calvary, but you're going to rise from the dead and crush his head. And the serpent crusher has come for us. And so that's a promise. And so that's the context, the, the near context for the story of Cain and Abel, this first, this first murder, the first murderer. So now I hope we start to see why there's such a problem with Cain's offering. It, there's a problem with it because it did not involve the shedding of blood. There was no substitution. I think that was the key difference between Abel's offering and Cain's offering. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock into the fat portions, and his faith is commended, Right? Is him being justified by faith. He brought this, he brought the best of his animals and sacrificed them to God. The fat portions. In keeping with the pattern that God had established with his parents in Genesis 3, that we just saw, I hope, 
Adam and Eve had undoubtedly taught him. Abel brought a sacrifice that pointed forward to the atoning death of a spotless substitute. So the rest of the Bible is about that. Even Israel, that's what Israel's about. Israel's the son who continues to sin and continues to rebel against God, and God continues to judge Israel to show that there is a greater son, a greater Israel to come. And I hope you're seeing how we put our Bibles together. That's why we've been preaching through Hebrews in the first place, to see Christ and how he's the key to unlocking all the Bible. It whispers his name as one child, uh, children's storybook Bible says it whispers his name on every page. You see Christ right here, I think. And why this offering was deficient. Cain's offering was, offering was deficient. In God's, in his curse, God told Adam in Genesis 3, 19, remember, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Cain was a farmer. He'd worked hard for the offering he sacrificed to God. It was, it was, uh, it was not, but it was not... An animal is not the shedding of blood. That's the problem. Because we learned back in Hebrews 9.22, really the key verse of the whole book, I think, is, is what? Without the shedding of blood, there's what? No. Come on, tell me. There's no what? No forgiveness or remission of sins. There's no covering, right? Without the shedding of blood. So maybe... Cain just thought, I'm okay, you're okay, here's some stuff for you, and I uh, hope you enjoy the vegetables. And he said, no, 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 no. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, you, your eternity is not settled. That verse is the most important verse probably in all of the Bible for you. Without the shedding of blood, without death. Because why? Well, because God said in the day, he warned Adam and Eve, he said what? Okay, if you eat of this tree, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We're under the death penalty. And Adam and Eve didn't die. They say lived hundreds of years. So what's God? Is God kind of just using scare tactics here? No. He's speaking of dying spiritually. You shall surely die. In the day you, they, they took and they ate as we saw, and they died spiritually, and they needed a substitute. To come between them and the unmediated wrath of God, which their sins and your sins and my sins deserve. So that's not popular to talk about wrath. We need to hear something more encouraging. Beloved, I would be derelict in my duty as a pastor if we didn't talk about that here. And regularly. We don't need to be told how great we are. I think part of our job is to disabuse you of that, right? And Because the culture says, you know, you're okay, I'm okay. God has your picture on his refrigerator. A life coach said that, not a pastor, not a faithful pastor, not one I would want to hear for sure. No, you need a substitute. And the deficiency in this offering is there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no shedding of blood. So what do we learn from this? Because he says here, back in Hebrews, go back to Hebrews chapter 11, it's just one verse. Shouldn't take long, right? What do we learn? Well, he says, being dead, yet he still speaks. Well, what does it say to us in 2021? Well, I hope I've said something. Uh, well, for one thing, it's very, very important, probably the most important thing in all of Scripture. I think here's at least eight lessons from the story of Cain and Abel. I'll put those up here. So if you want to take notes, you are able to do that, because I'll probably go fast, as I always do. The first lesson is this. Sinful man, and that's every person who's ever lived, right, except 
Jesus Christ. Sinful man is justified, declared righteous before God, declared not guilty, accepted by God only by faith in the blood of the sacrifice God has provided. This is the doctrine that the book of Hebrews teaches from all the way from 1, chapter 1 to chapter 13. It repeatedly emphasizes, and that's the doctrine of Scripture. So that's the first lesson. We're justified or accepted by God only through faith in the blood of the sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the righteous who lived a sinless life and died in our place as a man, fully God, fully man, that sacrifice alone makes us acceptable to God. Secondly, second lesson, you cannot come to God any way you choose. People go to church for lots of reasons. I know people go to church for the music. Joe's excited about that, right? Yeah, here. I know people go to church to give out their business cards. I know people go to church so they can look down on other people and say, I went to church. You didn't go to church. I go to church. You go to church. I didn't go to church. Going to church won't make you a Christian any more than me standing in my garage will make me a Buick. It just won't do it. There's one way. For all people, for all time. You can't just come to God that way. So, well, God, when you get for I went to church like back in 1994 all the way up to 2022. I didn't miss with mystery. You know, no, 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 no. Or you can't say, well, I was good. I paid my taxes. I was a good neighbor. You know, I was nice to people. So I'm coming to you that way. I think sometimes we have to lay down our own, well, we definitely have to lay down our own righteousness when we come to the cross, right? Because our righteousness, Isaiah says, is as filthy rags. We can't come just any way we choose. There's one way for all people for all time. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Me. You can't just say, I believe in God. I believe in some uh, personal force or whatever and then decide for myself how I'm going to draw near to him. I'll figure that out. That was Cain's problem, I think. He just came any old way, right? I'll just draw near to this, this guy however I want to. Cain would decide the terms of his coming to God. He would offer a sacrifice according to his own ingenuity. We don't need ingenuity in churches today. Not at all, right? We don't need fads, ingenuity. We need the gospel, right? Faithfulness. How bitter was Cain when God rejected his self-righteous worship? We'll see later. He was so bitter, he did what? Committed murder. That's where bitterness leads. Thirdly, third lesson. In the end, there are only two kinds of offerings. Two ways to attempt to come to God. There are those who point to their own work, their own merits, their own righteousness, or our pulpit will be built soon, I hope. We're getting a pulpit built. Or those who point to Jesus Christ. So it's either your way, and with God it really is your way or the highway. The highway to heaven leads through union with Jesus Christ, right? So it's your way or it's his way. That's it. Jesus Christ crucified in our place as our substitute to pay for our sins, to bear the wrath of God we deserve to bear. So unless we come to God confessing the guilt of our sin in repentance and our need for his unilateral sovereign grace and embrace the gift of his son who died in our place, we reject the one way, the only way God has provided for all people for all time. So what's not fair? Well, what could be more fair? One way for all people for all time. What about the other religions? They're all false ways. One way for all people for all time. If we come our own way, we will be rejected. We'll be condemned for our sins. We'll made to be made to suffer eternal punishment, God's wrath and hell forever and ever and ever. 
And we laugh at that and scoff at that in this culture. Oh, the eternal barbecue and all this stuff. Beloved, Jesus said far more about God's wrath and eternal punishment than he did heaven. You know, I preached on heaven here a while back. I preached one sermon on heaven. Well, that's really all I had in the, my gun, you know. We could have preached a series on God's eternal judgment. James Montgomery Boyce said, That is the problem with so many good religious people. They come to God with their heightened sense of ethics. They want to be received. They're goody two-shoes, that's what he's saying. They want to be received by God because of their beautiful offerings. Maybe they give a lot of money to the church. It's like to buy their way into the kingdom of heaven so crassly. But God rejects them and their godless worship. There is no blood, no Christ, and hence no true Christianity, however beautiful might their service be. Friend, maybe that's you today. You think being here today one time will get you a smiley face on God? Yeah, a little, little merit there, you know. Just a, some more merit. There is a system that teaches that. It's a fault system. Fourthly, we should offer only our best to God. We should offer beautiful worship to Him because He's deserving of our very best. We should come here with our hearts prepared in as undistracted a way as possible. Now, by that do I mean we should come dressed like I am or even better? I don't mean that at all. I've heard this used that way. I, I disagree with that. It's not giving God my best. But it's coming with my heart prepared, lit ablaze by the power of the Holy Spirit to worship the God who made everything. The God who is infinitely in be infinite in beauty, infinite in majesty, infinite in power, infinite in glory. That God, the sovereign creator of the universe who is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. That God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Father of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That God, we offer it to Him because He deserves to be worshipped. There's no higher privilege than for us to do all we can to honor and bless His name, both here on Sunday morning, but also in the way we live our lives Monday through Saturday. But this comes only after the blood, only after we have confessed our guilt, placed our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, that, that, that atoning sacrifice. You may say you're coming to God by any number of other ways. You may say, I'm coming with a sincere heart, but you could be sincerely wrong. You may say your religion is based on your good works, have been a nice person, a good neighbor, or sacraments, or religious tradition, or even church membership. But apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ, these will all be rejected like Cain's offering. We come in the one way God has provided, fifthly. Justification by faith has always been the only way. It's never been about works righteousness. There's a false teaching out there that's been somewhat prevalent during the history of the church. It says, well, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they were made right. Those people were made right by keeping the law of God. What's the problem with that? Not one of them ever kept the law of God. What does it take to get into heaven? Well, perfection. Well, you're not perfect, pastor, Right? But I'm relying on the sacrifice of another and the righteousness of another we get when we trust in him. And this was, I believe, the content of Abel's faith. This is all, all said. Every, every little biography is by faith, by faith, by faith, right? And it's, I think it's by saving faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. We're declared righteous. You need righteousness, and he provides the righteousness because he lived a sinless life as a man. That's why God became a man. So justification by faith has been, always been the, the only way to heaven. Old Testament saints were saved by justification by faith. Remember, Abraham believed the Lord when he made God made the covenant with him, and he accounted to him as righteousness. 
It's one of the central teachings of all of Scripture, justification by faith alone, and it sits at the core of the gospel. Abel was a sinner being the son of Adam and bearing sin's corruption in his fallen nature. Abel was a sinner. Abel needed rescue. He was not in the hall of faith because he was a fine chap. He needed rescue just like we do. It's a problem with Mariology, right? Mary gave birth to her Savior. She needed to be saved. And yet when Abel came to God bearing the blood of the substitute... Genesis 4, 4 tells us the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, and the blood turned away God's wrath. By speaking of the coming cross of Christ, and on that basis, God received Abel with gladness. So this is pointing forward like a big finger to the cross of Christ. We don't stay in Genesis, do we? It points forward. It points us to Christ, to that sacrifice that was to come. Sixth, justification by faith makes a claim on everyone who's ever lived. Acceptance with God is not only available to Abel. It was available to Cain as well. Genesis 4, 6. Remember what he said? God explained to this very embittered Cain. He said, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Friend, this is true of every person in this room this morning. I came this way to Christ by His grace. If you come to Christ or you have come to Christ, you will come this way and this way only. But it's, it's available for every sinner who's ever lived. The call of the gospel this morning is to every man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever lived to repent and be reconciled to God. It's come. Come to Jesus. Come. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's it. Come. Come. That's the call of the gospel. That's true of all of us. You may have been born into a Christian family. You need to come to Jesus still. Their faith does not save you. You might have the right connections. You might, you might have the best clothes. You might have the, the best education, the best degrees money can offer you. Or you may work in a, a career that puts you in a very high-functioning place that most of us could only dream of. But that will make you right with God. The cross levels, at the foot of the cross, everything's level, isn't it? The ground is level because we're sinners and God is merciful. This is why God said to Cain, why do you not come the way I've graciously provided? That's what he's saying. God offers each of us salvation, forgiveness of sin, and restoration of fellowship with him by the sacrifice he provided, even the blood of his own son. Seventh, God cares how we worship him. Scripture sets forth how we are to worship God. God is very picky about how he used to be worshipped. He's very precise. As one Puritan put it, well, he was someone said, well, that's too precise. He said, I serve a very precise God. That's why here at Christ Fellowship we hold to what's called the regulative principle of worship. We believe scripture regulates worship. We're not going to have, you know, gospel clowns or gospel minds or whatever you see in other places or gospel rock and rollers or rapper, whatever it is. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I, I'm very culturally anachronistic when I start talking about this and all the young people are like, who's Duran Duran? And everybody else just laughs. So we'll not go there. But God cares how we worship in scripture by precept and example gives us all the elements that we're to have in worship. And we hope you see those here. When you come to worship here and nothing else, because that's what we're here for. We're not here for anything else. And, you know, we could entertain you, I think, if we wanted to do that, but we would entertain you right into hell. That's not what you need, is it? And I'm not very entertaining, probably. Ask my family. Well, don't ask my family. Probably not. God cares how we worship Him. 
Scripture regulates worship. We can't come just any old way. Yes, we come as we are, no doubt about that. We come with all of our sin, and God is merciful and gracious, but we come and worship Him as He has set forth in Scripture. And it's what you see here today. It's very simple. Finally, number eight, jealousy kills. Jealousy and anger, it kills. Left unchecked, no doubt jealousy, I think, was at the root of this. His brother's sacrifice is being accepted, and he's angry about that, and mine is not. I'm jealous of him, and it leads to murder. If you are weighed down with jealousy, in fact, I think about 90% of the sins in this world go back to jealousy. I thought a lot about this because I'm a very jealous person, right? And we all are. And it leads to murder eventually, right? Je jealousy, it leads to anger. There's a, there's a downgrade and it leads to anger and anger leads, can lead to murder. Left unchecked by the Holy Spirit of God. So those are Sins you find in your heart as we examine ourselves, and those must be put to death. We see that here in this story, don't we? And well, that's another sermon for another time. Through his faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. A couple more things here as we close. This is the first instance of martyrdom in church history. Abel was a martyr. He laid down his life for the faith that he was accounted righteous now, and now Abel bears testimony about faith, its value, its worth, its power to justify all who trust in Christ. I mean, shortly after making his faithful offering, Abel was what? Commended by his parents? Oh, he was killed. Martyr for the faith. We don't know what happened. We don't know the particulars, do we? Go scripture. God's not been pleased to reveal those things to us. But Cain tried to silence his testimony, and yet we know that being dead through Hebrews 11 and through, of course, Genesis 4, he still speaks. His life still speaks. Which tells us that death is never the last word for the believer. James Moffat writes, Death is never the last word in the life of a righteous man. When a man leaves this world, he is righteous or unrighteous. He leaves something in the world. Think about that. He leaves something in the world. He's either, you're either righteous or unrighteous. Two kinds of people. When a man leaves the world. He may leave something that will grow and spread like a cancer or a poison, or he may leave something like the fragrance of perfume or blossom of beauty that permeates the atmosphere with blessing. And that's what these saints did here, being illustrated for us. They left behind the fragrance of Christ. Man leaves this world either a Paul or a Nero. As it turns out, dead men do tell tales. And it's going to be true of you one day. Men are not silent. Our lives are not silent. But speak to those who will listen. Who have ears, God gives ears to hear. I mean, for many thousands of years ago, righteous Abel speaks to us in the 21st century, even though he lived thousands of years ago. Because he speaks to us about faith. And here's the take home for you besides those eight things. What will your life say to future generations? Do you ever think about that? I have buried both of my parents now. I'm at that age. And I think a lot more about it than I used to. But as I've said here before many times, last time I checked, every 100, 100 out of every 100 people die. It's coming. And what's going to be written on your tombstone? That epitaph, you know, what's, what's it going to say about you? Have you ever thought about that? We've got a young congregation here, and you probably don't think about this, but you need to. 
Jonathan Edwards, very famously in his resolutions, he wrote at 19 years old, said, I'm going to think often of my death and the circumstances attending to my death. Think daily about it. You say, well, man, that's morbid. I didn't come here to hear about that. You need to think about it. You need to think about it because it's coming. And what will your life say? What will, what will they say when they stand over you on that day and the, the pastor, the preacher pronounces a benediction over your life? What will your faith say? Think about that today and in the week and in the, the days ahead. What kind of sacrifice are you bringing to God? Are you a good religious person? Christianity is not a good, really uh, rightly understood Christianity is not for good religious people. I know that sounds like a conflict in terms of maybe, but it's not. It's for those who understand the faith is costly. It cost the price of God, the, the price cost God his only son. And that's, that's, that's where it leads. There's a cost of faith. We must come by the blood of Christ, the price he paid. We can't just come like Cain any old way. We must lay down our own attempts at self-righteousness, our own religious beliefs, our pet sins, and come through Christ. We're bringing your best offering to God. Back in 1034, we learned a couple weeks ago that these believers didn't, have, they didn't mind having their property plundered and their things taken away for the cause of Christ because they had a better possession and a lasting one. Friends, that's what you have if you have Christ. You have a possession that the world can never take away. The election can't change the possession you have in heaven. You may, be, you may love that or hate that, and we talk about that all the time, but it can't change your status before God if you're in Christ. So you can rejoice. And God laughs at the kings on earth, and you can laugh too because you're in him. You can have joy. You cannot be saved by good works, but only through faith in Christ alone. But if you're a follower of Christ already, what kind of offering is your life right now? Because we're called to be Present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. May it be true of every one of us. We're living lives of salt and light, of spiritual worship that sings of our Redeemer and His love for sinners. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us the faith of Abel, but make us like Jesus, God. We're thankful for Abel. We're thankful for him insofar as he points us to Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would edify and strengthen us, God, and work in us and make us holy and make us humble and grant us persevering faith to live lives that shine the light of the gospel to a watching world, a lost and dying world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, do it in us and through us for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.